Well, now we're going to learn the how-tos. And you have a handout that summarizes 17 different methods of meditating on Scripture. Uh, which reminds me, by the way, um, mentioned the book last night. Some have mentioned uh, reading it. Uh, first book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Next month, don't exactly know when, no later than 1st of July, but probably closer to the 1st of June, uh, the revised and updated edition of that book will be available after 23 years. And one of the changes, there's 10,000 additional words, and a lot of them right here. There are six methods of meditation in the original edition of the book. These 17 uh, are in the new edition, and uh, these are there and explained. Uh, Also, a lot better written, I trust, Uh, a lot more gospel in every chapter, and um, taking out a few terms like cassette tape and uh, (laughs) things like that, and updated it a bit. So that's coming out next month. So if you're interested in more detail, that will be available next month. So how do we do this thing called meditation? Remember, it's not... Daydreaming. With meditation, you are trying to think of something. Your mind is on a track and you're going somewhere. You've got 17 different tracks uh, there before you. So your mind is not just sort of daydreaming, but you're thinking of something in particular. Your mind is not wandering here. It has a direction. But the way to get started is after your Bible reading, choose a verse or phrase for meditation. So you're going to read at length a whole chapter, three chapters, and come back and meditate on one verse or phrase, most likely. So read big, meditate small. Read big, meditate small. Read a chapter, three chapters, whatever it is. Read a big section. After your reading, you come back and select something from that reading, something small from that reading, and meditate on that. Well, on what? One option is just to choose a verse or phrase that stood out to you. You're reading along, it just jumps off the page and grabs you by the throat. Or it's a verse you never saw before. For whatever reason, it attracts your attention. It's very subjective. But the Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible and many times we believe that that's just the Spirit of God calling your attention to that verse for that day. So that's one way to do it. But what if no verse stands out? Then what? Then select a key verse from the passage. One of the big ideas. And this helps us stay with the main trunks and branches of Scripture, not the more obscure leaves. So you ask yourself, what what are the big ideas here? What's one of the key verses, one of the main ideas? And this helps us focus on the major themes of Scripture. For we never think enough on the big, big ideas, the big themes of Scripture. We never think enough on the cross, for example. But if God calls your attention to one of these obscure leaves, well, the glory of God is in the, one of the obscure leaves of Scripture. But while all the Bible is equally inspired, it's not all equally important. Let me say that again. While all the Bible is equally inspired, it's not all equally important. For example, there's a verse in the law that says, If an unclean man spits on a clean man, 
the clean man becomes unclean. Well, if you're looking for a scripture memory verse for this week, there's one for you. That's as inspired as John 3.16. But it's not as important as John 3.16. There's a verse in the law that says, Though he is bald, yet he is clean. Well, it's a verse that's become increasingly important to me over the years. But it's not as important as God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So while all the Bible is equally inspired, it's not all equally important. So if God calls your attention to one of the more obscure leaves of Scripture, then meditate on that. The glory of God is in it. But unless he does, stick with the main trunks, the main branches, the big ideas. So if you're reading through John 3, nothing stands out. What are the big ideas? Well, John 3, 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Or John 3, 16. Or John 3.17. Or John 3.27. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. Verses like these are the big ideas in John chapter 3. So focus on the big ideas. But once you've chosen a passage, so again, read big, meditate small. That's the general rule every day. Read big, meditate small. Because reading the Bible at length is like going across a lake in a motorboat. <clears throat> you get the big picture. You've got rocks on this side, you've got trees on this side, the lake narrows a bit here in the middle, there's a beach at the far end. So you get the big picture when you read the Bible in big chunks, chapter by chapter. Meditation is like going across that same lake in a glass-bottomed boat. And you see depth, you see clarity, you see detail that you don't get in the motorboat view. But both are helpful. The motorboat view gives you the big picture. That's reading big chunks of the Bible. You get the, the overview of Scripture. That's important to get context. But if that's all you do, you'll never see detail, application. But if all you do is the glass bottom boat view, you, won't, you just see these isolated verses and you don't see the big picture of Scripture. So having done that, if you've chosen something to meditate on, usually a verse or part of a verse, how do we do this? So here are a number of different methods. Number one, Emphasize different words in the text. Just think of it as squeezing one word at a time. One word at a time. So that famous verse in John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you were to meditate on that verse using this method, you'd emphasize, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. Jesus said that of himself. He made that claim. He is the resurrection and life. I am the resurrection and life. Right now. Not just in Bible times. Right now, he's the resurrection and life. I am the Resurrection and life. The only one. I am the resurrection. And so you emphasize it one word at a time. And you'll get a different flavor, a little different perspective each time you do that. Well, anybody can do that. You don't need any seminary training to do that. Anybody can do that. Here's another. Rewrite it in your own words. Suppose you're going to send an email to somebody or a text message in which you are going to Communicate the, the message of that verse you're meditating on, but you couldn't use the same words. How would you communicate the same message with different words? How would you be faithful to communicate the same message, but if you couldn't use the same words of that verse? How would you do it? Well, in thinking about what would I say, that's, that's meditation. 
Here's another. Formulate a principle from the text. Formulate a principle from the text. What does it teach? I find the first one, squeezing one word at a time, I find that helpful if I'm sleepy, if I'm uh, in a hurry. You know, come on, find something, get it, get it, find something. Where is it? Find it, find it, find it. Well, that helps me to focus and slow down on one inspired word at a time. This one helps me if I have a big passage. If I'm meditating on a paragraph, let's say. So let's say it's the parable or the story of the prodigal son. Big section, whole story. What, what does it teach? Put that in one principle. Boil that down you, you, like you do a book sometimes. You say, what's the thesis statement of that book? So what's the thesis statement of this story? What's the principle? So, for example, what would be one with the, uh, the story of the uh, Good Samaritan? Huh? All right, that'd be one word, compassion. If you were to put that in a principle, how would you say it? Yeah, that'd be the perfect one because that's a biblical phrase there. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. How else might you say it? Okay, anybody in need is your neighbor. Okay, that's the whole thing in one, one principle, one phrase. And the more memorable you can make that, the better. That's where the fun kind of comes into it. So... Um, Martin Luther King's famous speech, I have a dream. Whole thing, pretty much in one sentence, very memorable. Um, the most famous sermon in American history is considered to be Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody want to guess on what is sometimes considered the second most famous sermon in American history? Preached by a pastor in Memphis in the mid-20th century. Payday Someday by Dr. R.G. Lee, Bellevue Baptist Church. He took about two and a half chapters, a story of, of Ahab and Jezebel stealing Naboth's vineyard, and he wove through that this theme, there'd be a payday someday. At first they took it, looked like they're successful, they got away with stealing Naboth's vineyard, they've come out on top, ah, but there'll be a payday someday. And it goes all the way through the story to the end where it lasts just like they're prophesied, Jezebel's corpse is eaten by dogs and so forth. There'll be a payday someday. And he says, my friend, there'll be a payday someday for you as well. Someday you will stand before the judgment of God and so forth. And this, this, this whole story is woven through this, this memorable phrase, there'll be a payday someday. There'll be a payday someday. So in the same way, you have this passage, boil it down into a principle, and then if you can make it memorable like that, uh, it's a lot easier to meditate on and, of course, to remember. And that's what we want to do. Four, think of an illustration of the text. What pictures it? What explains it? So you're answering the question, that is like, and maybe it's an anecdote, maybe it's a, an event in the news or in history, maybe there's some quotation, some song, Something that throws light on the text, that, that answers, that fills it out, completes the line. Well, that's like Jesus did this. In Luke 13, verses 18 to 21, he said, What is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? it it's like a grain of mustard seed. See the illustration there? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in his branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Well, evidently, sometime prior to this episode, he'd, he'd meditate on that. He'd said to himself, 
you know, I want to teach people what the kingdom of God is. I need an analogy. What is the kingdom of God like? And as he meditated, he thought about leaven put in something being baked. He thought about a mustard seed and how it grows. So do the same thing. You're meditating on a verse. What's that like? What's an illustration of that? Fifth, look for applications of the text. If you'll say to yourself, I will not close my Bible till I know at least one thing God would have me do with this verse, you'd meditate. It's just something to start, something to stop, something to pray about, something to believe, something to tell someone. What does God want you to do? We're to be doers of the Word. If it's John 3.16, how does God want you to be a doer of John 3.16? If you'll say, I'm not going to close my Bible till I know at least one thing God would have me do, well, you'll meditate. You will meditate. Number six. Ask how the text points to something about the law or the gospel. Now, in essence, our Bible is divided into law and gospel. Old Testament, New Testament. God's requirements. And then the gospel for our failure to keep God's requirements. And so to think of each verse as how it relates to that in one way or another. Um, for example, the Lord is my shepherd. How does that point to some aspect of the law or the gospel? God's willing to take care of us even though we didn't keep the law. Very good. Why do we need a shepherd? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've not kept the law. We've broken the law of God, so we need a shepherd. We're not sufficient. We can't get to God on our own. We need a shepherd. How does it? Well, and I just explained both sides of that. It, it shows the law our, because we need a shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd, right? He has made that provision for us. So to ask with any text, <coughs> um, how does it point to the law and the gospel? Uh, this helps us stay connected to the big themes of Scripture. Similarly, this one is a subset of that one. Ask how the text points to something about Jesus. We're to look at the Scriptures Christocentrically. Where did Jesus Himself tell us this? After His resurrection. Road to On the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, He remember He's talking with uh, that we think husband and wife. And... Um, he tells, shows them how everything in the, in the prophets and in the law and the writings pointed to him. And he said, didn't our hearts burn within us? You know, and he's talking to us about these things on the way. So Jesus gives us this Christocentric hermeneutic that wherever we are in the Bible, we should see how it points to Jesus. And that helps us keep from moralizing and turning our, our children into little Pharisees, just talking about morals and so forth from the Bible. But it helps us point to the great themes of Scripture, the law and the gospel, and particularly to Jesus. We're to see the Bible Christocentrically. So that verse we all snickered at a few minutes ago about, you know, uh, if an unclean man spits on a clean man, the clean man becomes unclean. If you look at that Christocentrically, anything come to mind? I heard several. I'm not sure I heard what I was looking for. How? 
And how was that seen at the cross? Jesus was spat on, right? By unclean men. And what happened when these unclean men spat on the clean man? He became unclean, right? He took our sins upon himself. Does that transform that verse or not? We all laughed about that verse earlier. When you see it Christocentrically, suddenly that is a very meaningful verse, isn't it? So wherever you are in the Bible, it's always valid to say, how does this point to Jesus? Something that Jesus fulfilled? Something he was the great example of? How does this point in some way to Jesus? So this helps keep us from coming to David and Goliath and saying it teaches us about killing the giants in our lives. This keeps us from moralizing and just seeing the Bible as a book of principles and so forth. We see how it points to, to Christ. I love the little book for preschoolers called the Jesus Storybook Bible by um, um, Lloyd-Jones, what's her name? Um, Sally, no relation to Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love the subtitle. Every story whispers his name. And she takes these narratives and, and from the Old Testament and shows how they all point to Jesus. It's always a healthy thing to do. Eighth, ask what question is answered. What problem is solved by the text? I call this one the Jeopardy method. You know the Jeopardy game show? It's been around for since I was a kid. Uh, and, and it works by they give you these different categories. And uh, you say, well, I'll, uh, Alex, I'll take state nicknames for 100. And it comes up, and you, you are given the answer. And your job is to supply the question for which that is the answer. So say, Alex, I'll take a state nickname for 100. Poof, the bluegrass state. What is Kentucky. If you just said Kentucky, what would Alex say? Yeah, and you know, or question, form of a question. That's the answer. Bluegrass State, that's the answer. So what's the question? What is Kentucky? All right, poof. Comes up. Here's your verse. Jesus wept. All right, don't tell me it's what's the shortest verse in the Bible. All right. <laughs> so that's the answer to some question. That is the solution to some problem. What's the question? What's the problem? All right, how did Jesus feel about Lazarus' death? We can extrapolate from that. What else? Does Jesus have emotions? Yeah, does Jesus have emotions? Is it ever okay for a man to cry? Well, Jesus wept. Is, was Jesus fully human? Well, Jesus wept. And that doesn't tell us everything we want to know about that, but it tells us something, doesn't it? So this one is, is actually kind of fun. It's a reverse engineering. You look at the verse, and there's your verse. I'm going to meditate on that verse. Aha, that verse answers some question. What's the question? That verse is the solution to some problem. What is the solution? So let me just uh, find one at random here just to uh, see how it works. Um, this is Luke eight sixteen. Just my eyes fell open to this. Now, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand in order that those who come in may see the light. What problem does that solve? What question does that answer? It should a Christian be embarrassed about his or her faith? Well, no one after lighting a lamp covers it and so forth. We want people to see the light. All right. It's not the only way we might come to that, but that's a very good one. 
should, very good, should Christians sequester themselves from the world? No. You don't, you want people to see the light. All right, very good. So you pick a verse, say, all right, that verse is the answer to some question, the solution to some problem. What is it? Number nine, pray through the text. All right. Now, it's at this point I can say, this is why we did praying through Scripture first, even though I said meditation on Scripture, you know, the intake of God's Word is more important. Because now that we, when we come to this, you all know what I mean when I say this. And because you've done it. And what I want to point out to you now is that praying through Scripture is not only a method of prayer, it is also a method of meditation on Scripture. And that's one of the reasons I really... I really love praying through Scripture and love to teach it because it not only teaches people how to pray, but also it is a method of meditation. I'm going to, and, and to prove that to you, to you who at 115 today said, you know, I read the Bible, I don't remember a thing I read. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands on something, but I'm not going to call on anybody, so don't be afraid. just want to show you something. And don't raise your hands till I say go. But I'm going to ask you if you can remember at least a phrase of the psalm you prayed through this morning. You may not remember the number of the psalm, but you can remember if it was the 23rd Psalm, for example, you might remember, uh, let's say, oh yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. If you can remember at least a phrase of that psalm, let me see your hand. Look at that. Almost everybody in the room raised their hand. The same people who told me at 1.15, I can't remember a thing I read in the Bible. The same people just told me, I remember something I read in the Bible four hours ago. Not only can you remember what you read in the Bible, you just testified that you can. I don't have to convince you anymore. You have testified to me that you can remember it. That's good news. That is good news. I've had people weep when they realize that. I can remember the Bible. I don't have to persuade you anymore. You've testified to me that you can. I guess it was, what, 10, 5, 2, 5, so yeah, four hours ago. And how long did you spend? I know you didn't spend more than 10 minutes. And my guess is that verse you raised your hand on, you didn't spend all 10 minutes on that one verse, did you? That might have been just a minute. But if you just spent one minute on that, that's 30 times longer than you normally would have looked at that verse. If it was just 30 seconds, and who doesn't have 30 seconds for the Word of God? Just 30 seconds, that's 15 times longer than you normally would have looked at that verse if you just looked at it in two seconds and went to the next verse. So you see, with very little time, very little effort, you can remember the Bible. And like I said, it was four hours ago. And you actually enjoyed it, right? And you didn't know you were going to have a pop quiz. And you're sleepy. And you can still remember it. Praise God for that. Enjoy that. Be gratified by that. 
You can remember the Bible, though it, you did it briefly and without effort, much effort, and you enjoyed it. You can do this. Remember, if anything God expects of all of His children, it's got to be fundamentally simple, right? It's got to be doable by you. You just demonstrated how easy it is. It's just that we don't meditate on scriptures. Not that you can't. You show me now that you can. We just don't. I'm not saying happy faces. But you should be happy. <laughs> you can remember the Bible. This is good. This is good. In fact, just to reiterate the point, I, I want to take some volunteers now. Just it, it, the phrase you remember, somebody, just call that. You don't have to tell me the psalm. You don't have to tell me anything else. Just just call out the phrase that you remember. Somebody. I lay me down and slept. I wake for the Lord to sustain me. I lay me down and slept. I awake for the, I awake for the Lord to sustain me. Did you try to memorize that? I don't think so. Well, you did. <laughs> I couldn't even remember it after you said it. Like you did. Someone else. Okay, Psalm 139, thank you. No, 51. All right. I'm poor and needy. Someone else. Very good. Young man, God is a stronghold for the impressed. Someone else. In thee, O Lord, do I take refuge. In thee, O Lord, do I take refuge. That was four hours ago. You still got it. You know what that means? That driving home, you can say, now what was that verse? Oh, yeah. And the, O oh Lord, do I take refuge. And you can pray through it. You can think about it. You can meditate on, on the way home. See, when you meditate on Scripture, you can remember it. And when you can remember it, you can bring it back day and night. Pray through it again. Think about it some more. See how easy this is? You can do this. You've done it. Very little time. Good. All right. Ten. Memorize the text. You work on memorizing a verse of Scripture. You can't help but think about it. And that's one way to meditate. You will meditate when you memorize. Next, create an artistic impression, expression of the text. Song, poem, sketch. Now, this is the most recent one I've come up with. And this illustrates why I have 17 here. By the way, let me reiterate, these aren't 17 steps. These are 17 completely different methods. Okay? I recently had someone say, I just don't think I can remember all 17 of these steps. And I went, oh my goodness. <laughs> I couldn't either. These aren't steps. These are different methods. And I have 17 of them because this one, for example, some of you would say, I would never in my life do that. And I've made a point of saying this is the last one. I've been working on these for 23 years or more. This is the last one I've come up with. But some of you might be vibrating with excitement to think, I, I can, I'm an inveterate doodler. I can doodle, and that's meditating on Scripture? Yeah. I, I like to write music. I can write music, and that's meditating on Scripture? Yeah. I write poetry. I can meditate on Scripture by that. Yeah. Because in all those cases, you're just soaking in that text. And the reason why I have 17 is some of you would say, I would never do that. And some of you are saying, this is the greatest thing I've heard. 
And on the next one, it might be just vice versa. I use all of these some of the time. I don't use any of them all of the time. But the ones that, that, that you enjoy, uh, I was in Midland last week and bought a book on doodling. How about that? New book on doodling. I sent a TED talk, if you know what those are. There's a woman from Austin. Her name is Sunny, S-U-N-N-I, Sunny Brown. And it's been viewed over a million times. And it's only six or seven minutes, but uh, it's, a, it's about doodling. And um, it's very interesting. And I was, uh, <clears throat> she, it was so popular, she ended up doing this book. And um, uh, the section I just finished in, in her conclusion, let's see if I can remember this, because this is where it, it grabbed me and it really validates this, what I'm putting up here. Uh, she said something like this. Uh, when you doodle, and she argues there's no such thing as a mindless doodle, that it really you're, it helps you focus and helps you think. She said, when you, when you doodle, you know, because it helps you to understand. You're brainstorming. You're thinking as you're doing that. You're, you're just thinking about it. And so that leads to knowledge. And she says, then if you will do it, then you will succeed. And she's not a Christian. But does that look familiar in anybody? Meditate on Scripture. Least obedience results in God's blessing. Then you'll have success and so forth. And I thought, that validates this method here. That doodling can be a method of meditation. And then if that results in doing the Word of God, can result in God's, God's blessing. So, if that helps you focus on the text, just sort of kind of soak in it, then go for it. Jonathan Edwards. Uh, every afternoon about 4 o'clock, he would get on his horse, head that horse to the left, down south, toward the main intersection of Northampton, he would turn right, turn to the west there at the main intersection where the church building was, and I'm sure he always inspected that as he went by, and he headed about two or three miles west of town to the Sawtooth Hills, west of Northampton. He would tie up his horse, and he would walk for contemplation and prayer, he said. And it was frequently his habit to sing forth his contemplations, he said. Now, he was, Edwards was very stiff. In fact, he ended up losing his pastorate, though he led them through the greatest spiritual awakening in American history because his people skills were so poor. He, he, was, he, was, just, he was very stiff and brittle, but he was one, one version of Encyclopedia Britannica calls him the greatest mind America has ever produced, which, which is fascinating when you think who said that. And they said it about a rural preacher of the 1700s. So he was this brilliant introvert. But when he would get out alone in the woods... And my favorite work by Edwards is his personal narrative. You can read it in 30 minutes. It's, it's wonderful. And he talks about he'd get out there and he would just weep aloud. Sometimes these just copious tears would just, just his, his love for God just knew no bounds. And he would just weep aloud for joy. And it, it's unbelievable to think of the contrast between his public persona and, and what he would do in the afternoons like that. But he said he commonly would sing forth his contemplations. Now, I presume sometimes it was like chanting a psalm where it's just the same note. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, that's one way of doing it. 
But as I understand it, he would sing forth whatever he's meditating on. And I've done that before. Like, Whitney, you're such an idiot. Why did you say that to your wife today? But more often, I will sing, I will improvise on the psalm and just make up a song. And maybe it's just one verse, you know, one verse of Scripture, and I will sing it, and then maybe I'm done. Or maybe I will try to continue that, that melody. And it's usually, it's very brief, and it's very uh, incomplete. But occasionally, it's really good. And I really get into it, and the Lord just seems to bless that. And, uh, but it's just another way of soaking in the text. Just living in that text. So if you find yourself one who enjoys poetry, composing a song, sketching, doodling, do that to help you focus on the text of Scripture. Ask the Philippians 4, 8 questions of the text. You have a handout, I believe, that has those on there. So that says if you're meditating on basically Scripture or life, in either case, you can use these texts. Because one day I was, I was meditating on Philippians 4, 8, which says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about, some translations say, meditate on these things. And I thought, you know what? The Bible tells me to think about these things. These would be good things to think about in, when evaluating a passage of Scripture or something in life. So, what is true about this? And I thought, well, sometimes it just is truth. The verse is, God is love. Well, it just is true. So I said, or, or what truth does it exemplify? And I went through and came up with these questions all based on that, that verse. Now, the Bible tells me to think about these things. I don't tend to say very often, what is lovely about this? Men don't do that, I guess, very much. But why should we? The Bible says to. So I took these things the Bible tells me to think about in Philippians 4, 8, and I used them as a way of meditating on something else. Another list of questions is the Joseph Hall questions. Now, Joseph Hall lived in the latter part of the 1500s, early part of the 1600s, and in 1606 he wrote a book that was perhaps the best-selling book of his day. I mean, it sold in his day like the Harry Potter books sell today called The Art of Divine Meditation. And I've summarized it on your handout. You can uh, download the whole thing, print it off uh, from Google Books. Uh, if you'll enter uh, Art, The Art of Divine Meditation, Joseph Hall, because there's another Puritan book by the same title. It's about 50 pages, and, and if you go there, it'll, you'll, it, it goes to the middle of a book. Uh, the Art of Divine Meditation is in the middle of a large book by Joseph Hall, the works of Joseph Hall. And so this, this will take you right to where that particular section starts. And if you print off about 25 openings, uh, 50 pages, but 25 sheets of paper, um, you'll get the whole thing. But, uh, frankly, I, it'd be a lot easier with this because I have modernized a lot of his questions and, and summarized. And this had an unbelievable impact in its day. Every minister read this book. It's reflected in so many different places. 
And although I am emphasizing right now using it to meditate on Scripture, let me just say, is there anybody here ever has to write term papers? Anybody here ever have to make presentations at work or somewhere else? This is an information generating machine. This is one of the two things that I do if I'm going to write something or going to preach. Well, the first two things I do because this will give you far more information than you could ever use or need. These guided questions. But I'm suggesting use them in your devotional life, maybe like one per day. If you're taking notes there, it's very important to write this by the first one. But this first question is by far the hardest, but it is the most important. The first question is by far the hardest, but it is the most important. It's the most important because... Notice it says, define or describe what it is. What are questions 2 through 10 about? It. Yeah. Well, if you don't know what it is from question 1, you can't answer 2 through 10, which are about it. And let me try to illustrate uh, this for you. Um, because this first one is the most difficult. But this, I'm telling you, this is worth your learning because of the applications it has to so many different areas of life. Um, so you, you find the verse you're going to meditate on. So nothing up my sleeve here. Let me just find a verse uh, at random. And um, let's see. This is Hebrews 9.28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. So, I'm going to define or describe what that is. And the answer that I write, that's going to be it. Okay? And questions 2 through 10 are going to be from that. So with 70 pairs of eyes watching me and in a big hurry, I'm going to try to come up with what, does it, what is it. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. All right. Unlike his first appearance. Jesus' second appearance. Uh, I'm just going to get something up here will not be about sin. All right. You can take this apart in many different ways. I'm just trying to get some up, something up here to make my point. All right. So unlike his first appearance, Jesus' second appearance will not be about sin. So I have attempted there to define or describe what that verse is. You with me? Pick the verse, and I'm defining it or describing it. Now, questions 2 through 10 are going to come from this. 
That's why the first one is the most important. And that's why it's the hardest. And I wanted to tell you that it was the hardest because if you try this and you say, good grief, this is hard. There's no way I'm going to do 10 of these. I don't want you to give up. If you know it's the hardest one, you're more likely to persevere. And, and let me give some illustration here in these others. Number two, what are its uh, divisions or parts? Do you remember the very first one where we talked about squeezing that verse one word at a time? That's what this is. So what are its divisions or parts? You want to just atomize it. Atomize it. So, unlike uh, first appearance. So what is that? There was another one. What is that like? His appearance. What are we talking about there? Uh, we're t- you know, we're talking about Jesus. Um, and, you know, you just keep breaking it down. That forces you to think about every part of this and not overlook anything. Then, what causes it? So I get over here on this side of it. What causes, unlike his first appearance, Jesus' second appearance will not be about sin. What causes that is what he accomplished in the first appearance. That's what causes the second one to be different because of what happened in the first one. Then I get on the other side and say, all right, if I have this, what does it cause? Uh, This uh, could cause what? Eagerness Eagerness to wait. It could cause anticipation, hope, so forth. All right? Then, next. What's its place, location, or use? Where do you use this? So imagine your life being like post office boxes. You've got all these different cubby holes. This one's your financial life. This one's your sports life. This is your school life. This is your parental life. This is your work life. This is your church life. You've got all these different cubby holes. Where do you use this? Where, which one does this fit in? Trials. Yeah, for trials, for one thing. Now, sometimes you say, you know, if it's God is love, well, that fits into all of them. If it's a verse on finances, you say, well, that fits into my financial life. So you figure out, where do, where do you use this? Then, what are its qualities and attachments? Now, this is interesting. Suppose I was meditating on this computer. This was my it. What are its qualities? Well, it's metallic. It's silver. It's black. It's a, a glass. It's plastic. It's electronics. It's warm to some degree. It has quality of, you know, tiny bit of sound. Think of any other qualities. Okay? All right, it's informative. All right, what about its attachments? What's that? A keyboard. keyboard is attached to that. Very good. What else? It needs a power cord. All right, power cord is attached to it. Did I unplug it? No, it still is. Okay, I thought you were kind of giving me a message there. Why <laughs> When I stepped on the power cord a minute ago, okay? It's attached to a power cord, which is attached to the power company and so forth. And the electricity is in there. What else? What's that? The Internet. Of course, from there, you're talking about all this. So you see, I mean, this one thing leads to another. It just provides more information you could ever use. Is it suspended midair? No, it's attached to the table. It just forces you to think about things you never would. Okay, so what are the qualities and attachments of this? Well, good grief, we could go on forever and ever. You know, for the, the love of God that, you know, is behind all this, the judgment of God, the thing about sin, that His willingness to come, His, his, his conde, condescension, that He would come the first time, and, the, you know, what it's going to be like when He comes the second time, and, and what's attached to this. Well, eternity is attached to this. The judgment's attached to this. Heaven and hell are attached to this. You see how this just begins to. All this information just rolls out of this. And you might say a lot of this, well, I'd never put that in my paper. I'd never put that in my Sunday school lesson. 
But you come up with all this information, you find some zingers that will can change everything. Just because you're, you're just generating so much information. What's contrary, contradictory, or different to it? Sometimes we understand what something is by what it's not. So what is contrary, contradictory, or different to this? Well, one thing is the second coming would be about sin. Maybe he didn't do it right the first time. He's got he's to you know, die for some more sins this time or get it right. Well, that's contrary, contradictory, or different to this. And we could give others. When today have you heard what something is by, by understanding what it's not? What's that? Meditation. Your very first slide, remember? Worldly meditation, Christian meditation. And I said, now meditation is not emptying your mind. That's not it. That's what we're doing here. What is contrary, contradictory, or different to this? But sometimes we learn by analogy, don't we? What compares to it? So can you think of anything that compares to this? Anything that's like this? Well, a lot of you might say, well, well no. But if it's, if it's God as Father, is there anything that compares to that? Well, yes, a good, loving, earthly Father compares. Now, much less, of course, but there are similarities. So you look for illustrations. Remember, we saw that earlier. What, what's this like? What compares to this? Then, what are its titles or names? Well, you might say, biblically, this is, this is eschatology here. This is the second coming. And then you might say, what, what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, by the time you go through that, you have an enormous amount of information. You might say, well, good grief. I'd never have time to do that in my devotional time. Maybe you do one question a day. You look at the same passage for a week or more. Now, we've just seen the Philippians 4-8 questions, the Joseph Hall questions. I want to contend there is a great benefit in coming here devotional time with a list of prepared questions. You might have your own list of questions, the journalist's questions, you know, the who, what, why, when, where, and, and where questions. Or some other list of questions. And you've got them in a Word document. And, and so you, you're going to meditate on Scripture. You open that document, you lift those questions up and drop them into your journal. And you answer those questions. You've got them written in the back of your Bible somewhere. The benefit of answering questions is this. It's a lot easier to answer questions than it is to generate information off the top of your head. For instance, what if I said, now, we'll be, we'll be finished soon, but before anybody can leave, I want you to turn over to the back of one of those handouts, and I want you to write a one-page essay about the chair you're sitting in. Go. That is the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. Sounds like some professor. You have some irrelevant assignment like that. But what if I said, before anybody can leave, turn it over. I want you to write a one-page essay about the chair you're sitting in. But I want you to tell me, is it comfortable? How could it be improved? It costs this much money. Is that a good value? Why or why not? Do you have any special memories associated with that chair? <laughs> well, you're laughing, but you might say, I learned how to pray sitting in this chair. That is a very different essay now, isn't it? Now you've got a story to write. What's the difference? You're just answering questions. The first one, you don't know what you're going to say. And the second one, you're just answering questions. And that's a lot easier. So, real life. You come to your Bible, you want to meditate on Scripture, you know you should do that, but you're so sleepy. You want some help? 
just answer questions rather than just sit there and try to generate information off the top of your head because what are you going to do? You're going to daydream. And then you're going to realize, I'm not getting anything done. I need to go to work. Next method. Set and discover a minimum number of insights into the text, a number that you set in advance. First time I did this, I was meditating on Hebrews 12, 29. For our God is a consuming fire. And I said, all right, the, the Bible says God is a consuming fire. So I'm going to try to come up with at least 10 comparisons between God and fire. So I'm going to set the bar at 10. And I said, okay, God is light, the Bible says. Fire gives off light. Fire gives off heat. We speak of God warming our hearts sometimes there. Fire is the ultimate emblem of judgment. God is the judge. Uh, fire is sometimes used as to cleanse things, like cleansing the prairie of weeds and so forth. And God cleanses our hearts, we say. Well, those four came to me very quickly. Why did they come to me so quickly? Huh? Yeah, I already knew them. Have I learned anything yet? Have I grown yet? What does my flesh want to do? Huh? Quit. Smug. With the accomplishment, I've come up with four comparisons between God and fire. Aren't I, aren't I godly? Aren't I smart? But I've set the bar at ten, which forces me to put my head in the text and keep looking. By the way, I was doing this somewhere and not long before the end of the conference, and I, I still have it. A kid sent me a sheet of paper front and back, single space, comparisons between God and fire. I don't want to just rehearse what I already know. This forces me to keep looking into the text. I've had at least four colleagues that I teach with confirm the story I'm about to tell you. It's one of my favorites. There is a legendary assignment that the late Dr. Howard Hendricks used to give at Dallas Theological Seminary in a course on Bible study methods. And he would give, assign his students uh, Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, class, he would say, I want you to come back tomorrow with at least 25 observations on this text. And all, by the way, in all my 50-plus years of teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary, I've never had one student who couldn't come back with at least 25 observations on that text. So what are you going to do? You're going to get 25 observations, right? So they come back the next day, did you get yours? Yeah, man, it took me three hours, but I got them. Did you get them, class? Yes, prof, we got them. All right, good. Your assignment for the next class is to come back with 25 more observations on this text. Oh, and by the way, in all my 50-plus years of teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary, I've never had one student who couldn't come back with 25 more. So what are you going to do? You're going to get 25 more if it kills you, right? You don't want him to come back next year saying, in all my 50-plus years of teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary, I've never had one student, except Bob Welch, who couldn't come back with at least 50 observations on this text. 
So they come dragging in, you know, did you get yours? Yeah, man, I was up all night, but I got them. Did you get them, class? Yes, prof, we got them. All right. Your assignment for the next class is to come back with, and they're holding their collective breath, as many as you can. Oh, good. They're thinking, you know, I might come back with 51. Oh, by the way, the all-time record is over 600. See you tomorrow. 600? Are you kidding me? Now, what are you going to do? You may not come back with 600, but just knowing that some smart aleck did, (laughs) you're not going to come back with 51, right? Just knowing that somebody has seen 550 more things in that text than you've seen convinces you there must be more there than you have seen, right? So what do you do? You keep looking. Folks, an infinite mind has inspired every verse of your Bible. And there is always more there to see than you have yet seen. Observations, applications, but there is always more no matter how familiar you are with that text. There will be things that you have known all your life in the Bible, but you'll see brand new things when you get married. There will be things that you have always seen there that once you have children, you will see you didn't see before. All your life, there will be things in familiar texts that you have never seen, but you have to look. Then find a link or common thread between all the chapters or paragraphs that you've read. If you read one chapter, it has, say, three paragraphs. Is there a common thread or link between those three? Easiest one in the Bible is Luke 15. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, there's a lost son. But let's say you've read in more than one place. When I'm reading through the Bible in the first part of the year, I like to read in multiple starting points. I know people that try to read through the Bible, they get into Genesis, that's fine. They get in the second half of Exodus, and then Leviticus, and they just can't keep up the momentum. But I find if I read in more than one place, that helps me keep the momentum. So 1st of January, I'll read a little in Genesis, and a little in Joshua, a little in Job, a little Isaiah, a little in Matthew, if that's too many, then every other one, the green ones, read in those. And if you read approximately equal portions, you'll finish them all about the same time. Well, suppose you do that. You read in Genesis 22 today about Abraham offering up Isaac. And then you're in Judges by now where Samson kills the lion with his bare hands. And then in the Psalms, you're in Psalm 51. And you get over in Isaiah and you're in Sennacherib's invasion where the Assyrian king comes down. They had helplessly, hopelessly outnumbered uh, Israel. But the angel of the Lord came down one night and killed 185,000 of them. And the next day a few survivors woke up and went home. And then you're in Matthew where Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. And your assignment, should you decide to accept it, is to find a common thread or link between all five of those chapters. You might be the first person in the world who tried to do that. Well, in essence, what you want to do is put a a filter up there to filter out everything but what you're looking for. And I would suggest first the filter of Christ. How can you see Jesus in all those passages? Can you see Jesus and Abraham offering up Isaac? Oh, that's an easy one, right? Father offering up the son, the substitute for Isaac. How about Samson killing the lion with his bare hands? Well, Peter said that Jesus... Uh, that that uh, uh, Peter compared Satan to what? 
a roaring lion. And he said that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So when we see Samson killing the lion with his bare hands, just like Jesus, he needed no weapon. He needed no one else's help. By his own power, he destroyed the works of the devil. In Psalm 51, it says, uh, Purge me with hyssop. How are our sins purged? By what? The blood of Christ. Sennacherib's invasion. Now, this is not what it teaches, but it's a picture of something that Jesus did. When the angel of the Lord came down and surrounded the 185,000 that surrounded them, helplessly, hopelessly outnumbered them, but he slew them. In my life, so my sins had helplessly, hopelessly outnumbered me. I had no hope, but Jesus, the angel of the Lord, came down and in one stroke took my sins away and set me free. And then in blind Bartimaeus, what he did for Bartimaeus physically, he did for me spiritually. So all these passages that at first appeared to have nothing in common, I put up the filter of Christ. How do I see Jesus there? But maybe your, your current crisis is what you want to look at. How do each of these speak to my current crisis? Maybe it's about being a parent. Maybe it's financial. And you want to scour these texts. Is there anything here? Anything here? How about Abraham offering up Isaac? Anything you see there about being a parent? Oh, yeah. How about Samson killing the lion with his bare hands? Well, maybe you don't want to go there. Some of you got it. <laughs> Psalm 51. Parents ever need to confess sins to their kids? Yeah. And maybe in those five, only two or three seems to speak to your situation. But what are you doing even in those other three? You're scouring the Scriptures. Is there anything here, anything here that speaks to my situation? You're meditating. Then ask how the text does speak to your current issue, your current situation. And then meditation mapping. One of the five most influential books of my life. I don't have time to talk about it. This would be another two or three hours just in and of itself. I will put the reference there at the bottom, Tony Buzan's book, and uh, you take his idea of how to um, put your thoughts down on the text. It's a more visual way of putting them down. And uh, to do that with your scripture verse. And you meditate on that using his method. It's not a Christian book, uh, but it's not a non-Christian book. It's sort of like your lawnmower manual, you know. <laughs> it's not a Christian book. It's not an anti-Christian book. Uh, and so I found that extremely helpful. All right. Let me close this out now. Let's come back to that person who said, look, you don't get it. I'm a single parent. I'm, I'm working two jobs. God is my witness. The best I can do in any day is chisel out ten minutes of my day for the Word of God. And now what I hear you saying is you've got to add meditation. So what you're doing is not enough. Ten minutes is not enough. You've got to do more. You've got to meditate on top of that. Well, I don't have ten more minutes. No, this is not a, another burden. This is a help. If you only have 10 minutes, don't read for 10 minutes. Read for five minutes. And do what for five minutes? Meditate for five minutes. Read for five minutes. Meditate for five minutes. It's far better to read less if necessary. And believe me, I'm not advocating reading less. I think in all of my books, somewhere I advocate reading through the whole Bible on a regular basis. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by what word? Every word. How are you going to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God if you've never even read every word that proceeds from the mouth of God?
So I don't advocate reading less of the Bible, but some days, if necessary, it's better to read less and remember something than to read more and remember what? Nothing, right? Far better to read less, but walk away from that knowing you've heard from God. You've met with God. You've got something you can meditate on day and night than to close your Bible having read a lot more and unable to remember anything you've read. So you've learned today without adding any time to what you're already doing how you can absorb and remember the Word of God so that you can recall it whatever else you're doing day and night. So easy.